Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. I am thrilled to bring to you this conversation with Professor Campbell Harvey. He is the creator of the most famous recession indicator, and that is the inverted yield curve. In this episode, we get Professor Harvey's macroeconomic outlook, why he thinks that slower growth will be the ideal situation this year, and his take on the Federal Reserve and why the Fed needs to undo the damage that it caused unnecessarily in 2023. And of course, a deep dive on the inverted yield curve and what it is signaling. I really enjoyed this conversation with Professor Harvey. I learned so much from him and I know you will too. Campbell Harvey, Professor of Finance at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University. It is great to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time, Professor Harvey. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm so thrilled to have you on. And I'm just down the road here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I know you're in Durham, and it's great (laughs) to have you. And I was hoping we could start, uh, Professor Harvey, where I always start with my guest, and that is to get there big picture macro view assessment of the economy. And one of the things about this show, Cam, is you can take all the time you need. You will not be interrupted while you're answering. So let's start there, the big picture macro view. So the big picture macro view is like some people were surprised in 2023 that the economy grew uh, as it did. That print in the third quarter, of 4.9% for real GDP growth really caught people by a surprise. On top of that, the inverted yield curve indicator is a very reliable indicator. Uh, it's something that I discovered in my dissertation. And that inverted yield curve um, happened in November of 22. So many people expecting a recession uh, to begin in 2023 but instead it didn't. So I think that that was a surprise to some people, not not to me, not at all. Because to understand the current state of the economy, you need to diagnose what has happened at least over the last uh, year and a half. So the reason that GDP grew robustly in 2023 was the consumer. So the consumer had built up savings uh, and a couple of channels uh, to increase those savings happened during the pandemic. So one was this pent up demand. The people just weren't spending. They weren't going out and and shopping. Um, But there was another channel that's important and that is the government support, extraordinary government support. And this led to a surge in savings And those savings have been drawing down over the last couple of years. And they've drawn down pretty substantially. But in that drawdown, consumers are spending. So we saw actually a couple of months where we had uh, like negative, well, actually a couple of quarters, but negative uh, GDP growth. Uh, But even if you looked inside those numbers, the consumer growth was positive. So the consumer really bailed out the economy in 2023. And then when we are sitting like today, what is the outlook? And that's the key thing. So um, those savings have been drawn down very substantially. Uh, Leading indicators suggest that is the case. And one leading indicator I like to use is delinquencies on auto loans and uh, consumer loans in general, um, you know, things like that. Uh, and the delinquencies have gone up. So, so think of usually they group three classes, autos, credit cards, uh, and consumer in, in general. And, and, and if you think of credit card in particular, you know what the rates are. Uh, if you don't pay on your credit cards, like 20%. So if you've got any savings, you want to use those savings to pay it down because of that punitive rate. But no. So this suggests to me that the consumer has run out of steam and we will see slowing. Uh, We'll start to see it in the first quarter, 
But I think that second quarter of 24 is the key quarter. And let me also mention that there are other headwinds out there. And uh, one that doesn't get a lot of play is the student loan paybacks. So there was a moratorium uh, on paying uh, down your student loan, and that ended in October. And that affects tens of millions of people. And it comes right out of their disposable income. So it's just another example of something that I think will lead to slower growth in 2024. The ideal situation is that we have slower growth, maybe a technical recession uh, like we had in 2001 or even 1990 and 1991. These were really shallow. So that would be the ideal situation. And that's kind of where I'm leaning. But there is a major caveat in my kind of soft landing call, and that is the Fed. So the Fed needs to quickly undo the damage that they did in 2023 by unnecessarily increasing the Fed funds rate far beyond where it should have gone. That is a fascinating frame up for this conversation and so many things I would love to explore further with you, Professor Harvey. One of those I wrote down was you mentioned um, that we will likely see slowly slowing start in the first quarter and that the second quarter of 2024 will be the key quarter. Why is that? Why the second quarter? Well, again, the, the story that I'm telling has to do with the consumer. Uh, and the consumer, remember, is approximately 70% of GDP. There are other components that are important, and we can talk about those other components. So, for example, investment spending, like on plants and equipment and things like that, that is a much smaller piece of GDP, but it's a very important piece because it's so volatile. So, so think of the consumer. Uh, you don't see these massive swings in consumer spending because people get used to what, what they like to consume and certain things you just have to buy. And we've got government support programs for the consumer. There's no government support problem, program like uh, unemployment insurance or uh, social security for business investment. There's nothing mm -hmm. like that. So it can go up sharply and it can go down sharply. So, so again, it's, it's natural that the consumer would prefer kind of a smoother path rather than a, a giant surge in consumer spending and then a cratering of consumer spending. So, so both of those are important. But focusing on the consumer, as I am so far, uh, it just, when I look at the data, it's suggestive that the spending is drawing down um, because the savings have been drawn down. And the exact date, it, it's, it's actually hard to call. So I was thinking probably uh, the end of December of 2023 um, would be the point where the savings are really challenged, but there's a margin of error. So it could be from that point to the end of the first quarter, maybe into uh, the second quarter. Uh, mm -hmm. But that that's the logic on that the consumer side. That makes sense. And one other thing I wanted to ask you about, you, you mentioned that the Federal Reserve will need to undo the damage they did in 2023 um, with the, by un, that, that damage being unnecessarily increasing the Fed funds rate. So my question for you is, um, Professor Harvey, at what point do you think they reach that unnecessary threshold when it comes to the rate hikes? And it'll be a compound question. Do you think they will be successful in undoing that damage? Okay. So uh, on the first part, uh, January 3rd, 2023, I went on the record saying that I thought that my inverted yield curve signal for recession might be a false um, positive, false signal. And I kind of went through the logic 
of other information that was suggesting that we could avoid a recession. But there was a very important caveat. And that caveat in my LinkedIn posting said, all of this is conditional on the Fed terminating the rate increases. And that exactly did not happen. So the Fed continued to hike and to spin a false narrative that they had to hike because inflation was so high. So I need to unpack why this was a false narrative. And it's really important, I think, for your viewers uh, to understand this. So, so we know that the Fed was very late in raising rates. They tried to talk down inflation as being transitory. When I looked at the data, it wasn't transitory. And it was obvious that this was going to be uh, what I call an inflation surge. So why was it obvious to me? Well, it has to do with the way the inflation is calculated. So within the CPI, the most important component is shelter. And that represents 35% of the CPI. Uh, the inflation indicator that the Fed prefers, the personal consumption expenditure deflator, that has a 40% weight in shelter. So shelter is really important. So, so shelter is composed of a few things like housing prices and, and rents and things like that. But it turns out in 1982, we changed the way that shelter inflation is calculated by using something called owner's equivalent rent. So you figure out what the rental value would be of a house, roughly. And it turns out that the way that this is calculated uses a lot of past data. And it kind of smooths out the fluctuations in the real-time uh, rental costs and housing costs. So I'm looking at the data. Well, the Fed is saying inflation is transitory. And I see that rental inflation is in the double digits. And I'm thinking, oh, um, the, the inflation rate that's being reported is vastly understating what inflation actually is. And it's just a quirk in the system that's using this old data uh, for, for rents to kind of smooth out the shelter inflation. So I was convinced that we were going into a surge and we went into a surge as the rental cost data started to work into uh, the CPI. So that was a clear mistake on the Fed's part. And then they compound this with another clear mistake by continuing to increase rates in 2023 and using the inflation excuse. But if you actually look at the inflation data and look at the shelter data, the shelter data that was being incorporated into the CPI in 2023 was the stale data based upon a surge that happened over a year ago in shelter inflation. So let me tell you how ridiculous the current numbers are. So if you think of the 3.4% uh, CPI, the shelter contribution, so the part that 35% of the CPI is reported at 6.2%. So just a casual look at real-time data and if you look at uh, rental surveys, apartmentlist.com or Zillow or things like that, that rental inflation is running negative year over year. There's a huge gap between what is going into the CPI and what is happening in real time. So what I did in 2023 was I said, well, 
I've got like an alternative measure of CPI. And it's very simple. I use everything is the same except for shelter. I use real-time data, not data from the past. And, and then you need to decide what to put in. So even though rental is running, let's say, minus 2% year over year, I said, well, let's be conservative and let's say 2% year over year, plot positive 2%. When you do that, the CPI inflation is not 3.4%. It's 1.9%. And it has been at 2% or below 2% for 2023. So when the Fed is saying, oh, we need to continue to hike in 2023 because we need to take control of inflation, that does not square with the real-time data. And I think it's obvious to all your viewers that if you're making policy decisions, you need to make the policy decision based upon real-time data, not data that happened 12 to 18 months ago. The stuff that happened 12 to 18 months ago, we can't do anything about it. All we can do is to impact what's happening today and in the future. So I believe that this was a fundamental policy error. So if you think about it, these are two errors that made things worse. So being very late to the game uh, meant that uh, the Fed allowed inflation to get out of control and surge. And then um, being so aggressive and pushing rates up at a speed that we've not seen historically, that will take a bite out of economic growth. So, so I think that uh, what the Fed was doing and hiking these rates, we all know that that has a negative impact on growth. And uh, so I think that what the Fed has done in this cycle has made things worse. So we will be very fortunate uh, to get out of this with slow growth. And it, 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 it's hardly, um, you know, a situation where we congratulate the Fed for it. It's in spite of what they've done uh, that potentially the economy is resilient uh, enough. So that's that's kind of the way that I look at the situation. And as I said, uh, a caveat for the soft landing forecast is that the Fed needs to undo at least the damage that they did in 20. 23. The Fed funds rate needs to be cut and not by 25 basis points. Uh, it needs to be cut also sooner rather than later. There just is not a good economic rationale for having the rate uh, so high. It is causing multiple problems. Then what, okay, you mentioned that it needs to be cut and not just by 25 basis points. How many cuts do you think need, need to happen or, and the size of those cuts, maybe the, the frequency of the cuts? So again, I would prefer sooner or later, not, not later. Um, and these incremental cuts of 25 basis points, uh, that's just not good enough. So we need to quickly um, expunge the mistake that the Fed made in 2023. So uh, anything less than a 50 basis point uh, cut, uh, I'm going to be very disappointed with. And these cuts need to happen immediately. So for example, the next inflation print that, that will happen, the inflation rate is going to go down dramatically. And it's really easy to forecast. It's really easy. So if you think about year over year inflation, it's like the monthly inflation over the last 12 months. And every time we get a new print, we get a, like a new month's inflation and we drop an old inflation number. The inflation number we're going to drop next time 
is 0.8%. It's a huge number. It's like near annualized double digit number. That's going to drop. And if we have like 0.3 or 0.2 or anything less than 0.8, the inflation uh, that is reported is going to plunge. And I predict about like 2.5%. And again, the 2.5% is not, that's still incorporating 6% uh, shelter inflation, which is totally unrealistic. So I think that uh, the Fed needs to cut quickly. So there's a difference between what I'm saying, what the Fed should do, and what the Fed will do, obviously. So, uh, you know, maybe there's a reason that I'm not on the FOMC. Uh, uh, I would do things differently. And, and people ask me, oh, well, what do you think the Fed is thinking? And I tell them, uh, you need to ask the Fed, not me. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing what they're thinking. And it is baffling to me. This whole episode has been baffling. Uh, like I'm a single economist. Uh, this stuff that I'm talking to you about, this is not rocket science. This is really simple stuff. And the Fed, the Fed has 400 PhD economists. So, so I, I, it is baffling to me, but it is, I am convinced um, that the situation has been made worse, not better, mm-hmm. by the Fed, uh, you know, interventions. And I just hope that they undo some of that damage mm-hmm. quickly and, and decisively. And even in that case, it still sounds like the best case scenario is that if we are very fortunate if we get out of it with slow growth, uh, and and that's if they, they undo this. So maybe the question for, for you is, what would you do differently at the Fed? I, I get the the rate cuts, and they you don't want them any smaller than fifty basis points, and do them sooner than later. But do you think that do you think they would ever look at real time data, or that we just kind of locked in like how they measure the CPI with that stale data that you pointed out earlier? What would you it do is, differently at the Fed? It's remarkable because the Fed has like uh, now casting reports. They spend. Uh, a lot of resources uh, in figuring out what is happening uh, in real time. So uh, it's not like they don't have the data. They've got great data. So indeed, at at Duke University, I was the co-founder of our Duke CFO survey, which is a well-known global survey. Uh, And and it is now partnered with uh, two of the Federal Reserves. And, and why would they do that? Well, it's useful data for them. It's very important to know uh, what the CFOs are thinking is crucial. The usual leading indicator is a purchasing manager uh, survey or something like that. Well, the CFO knows the orders that are going to that purchasing manager like well before. So it's a great leading indicator. So they've got real-time data. But I think that um, some of this stuff uh, in terms of the inflation mechanics, somehow they've missed this. Okay. One of the areas I'm like dying to talk to you about, Professor Harvey, is you mentioned at the top of this conversation your dissertation. You are famous for being the founder of the Yield Curve Indicator. Can we start with that, um, maybe a bit of the origin story and why does the yield curve matter? Let's start there. The origin story is uh, today kind of hilarious in real time and was not hilarious. Um, Yes, I was a first year master's student looking for a summer job and I got two offers for internships, one at a major media company and the other at the largest copper miner in the world. And both were in corporate development, which is kind of what I was interested in at the time. So I took the copper mining job. Uh, And the first day when I walked in, 
they said, you've got one assignment over the next 10 weeks. And that is to build a model to forecast U.S. real GDP growth. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, that's a job. Uh, I didn't think much of it. I was, <laughs> I was young and naive. Uh, looking back, it's extraordinary. Uh, if you think a copper mining firm, think of all the data that they look at. Um, given that we know copper is very pro-cyclical, the price of copper just moves with the business cycle. People call it Dr. Copper because it is uh, kind of uh, symptomatic of what's happening in the economy. And if you think of the key decisions that the copper miner is making in terms of opening mines, closing mines, spending on research and development for exploration and things like that, the single most important number is the expected GDP growth over the next year. So that is a job they gave to this intern, me. So <laughs> what, a, yeah, what a joke uh, in hindsight, but in real time, I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is, uh, this is interesting. So what do I do? The first thing I do is uh, I assess the competition. So the competition were three companies that were econometric consultants. I remember two of them, um, Wharton Econometrics and DRI. And what they uh, did was to hire dozens of PhD statisticians, econometricians, mathematicians, economists, and developed very elaborate model of the economy with hundreds of equations, with great data, great computing power, and then it would spit out a forecast of real GDP growth. And they would charge like fifty dollars to $100,000, which is much more uh, today. So this is 1980, 1981. Wow. So uh, there was no way I could compete against that. I didn't have the skills. I didn't have the data. Uh, I didn't have the computing power. I needed something simple. So... I was reading some research papers by this person at the University of Chicago that had the insight that stock prices should have information about future economic growth. And, and his story was very compelling. So the idea is that the stock price depends upon not the past, but the future cash flows. And the future cash flows are strongly dependent upon the strength of the economy. So stronger growth, higher expected cash flows, higher stock price, and the reverse. So I was reading these papers, and the results were very mixed. So uh, the the stock prices or the market in general give many false indications of recession. So they got maybe half, they missed half, but a lot of false signals. So I read that stuff and I thought, well, the basic idea is a good idea that an asset should reflect um, the value of the asset today should reflect what's going to happen in the economy in the future. So that idea is a very good idea. But maybe uh, this professor was looking at the wrong data. And my idea was to look at the bond market. And the bond market had a lot of advantages. So, so number one, um, with a stock, you have no idea what the future dividends are going to be. But with a bond, you know exactly what the coupon is and what the the principle is. There's no uncertainty there. With the stock, you don't know when the expiration of the stock is. You hope never. With the bond, you know it's a five-year or a 10-year bond. So you know that. And then number three is important. When you look at a stock price, you look at the expected cash flows, and then you discount those back to present value and use a discount rate that reflects the risk of the stock. And that risk can shift through time. And that alone could lead to false signals. Whereas the bond, 
it's effectively risk-free. So you put all that together and it suggests that there could be important information in bonds that help um, you know, forecast uh, GDP growth. So I did this. I also noticed an old Fed paper uh, from 1965 that noticed looking at uh, rates of different maturity. So let's say the yield curve, which is, let's say, a long-term rate, like a 10-year rate, minus a short-term rate. There appeared to be some patterns in that spread linked to the business cycle. So this researcher, Ruben Kessel was his name, he didn't link it to predictability of the business cycle. He just noticed that there was a cyclical pattern. So you put all this together for me, and I think I've hit the jackpot. So I find that the difference between the long-term rate and the short-term rate is highly predictive of economic growth. And when the short-term rate goes above the long-term rate, and that's the inverted yield curve, that appears right before recessions. So I'm super excited about this. I've actually, I think I've, I've done my job um, and, and I'm going to present to senior management. Um, I walk in that day with just so much excitement and optimism and I'm greeted in the main floor and handed a cardboard box which contained all of the stuff on my desk and told that I was terminated. Oh. <laughs> the day you were presenting? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, I, so it was like shocking, like that I was young and I'd not been fired or laid off uh, ever. And it just seemed so weird um, because I think I'd done really good work, but I found out it was my whole group that we're gone. And there's nothing to do with me. And oh, I again, I was young and foolish. Um, I immediately fired off a letter to each member of the board of directors. Um, and I should have not done that. Um, and it just seemed overly harsh. Uh, like I'm a student. This is my summer job. Mm -hmm. And but you were like an intern, right? I was a summer intern. And uh, and and I'm gone. And and this was also in Canada, so maybe this might happen in the U.S. But Canadians supposed to be nice and friendly, and and they kick the student out. Um, so look, uh, in the bottom line, we were in a recession. Mm. So uh, so it would have been great if this company had invested in this technology a few years earlier. But no, so so the so I'm out of a job, and things just kind of turned out. So there's no way to get another job for the last four weeks. So I just worked on the idea, and then when I went back for my second year of my master's, I presented it, and I think that the faculty were very surprised, and they advised me, you need to apply for a PhD, which it was uh, no intention when I enrolled in the master's of getting a, a PhD. Uh, so like I didn't know much about it. Um, to be honest, my family was not enthusiastic. So I was the first person with a bachelor's degree and they were okay with me getting a master's degree. And I remember my grandfather saying, PhD, is that like one more year? He says, no, granddad, it's not, it's more. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, it, so it was uh, a bit controversial. Uh, I applied to a number of places, but the place I really wanted to go was the place where people were doing research, linking stock market and asset prices to real activity. That researcher was Eugene Fama. Um, and uh, I was accepted at Chicago, and he uh, generously became my dissertation chairman. And uh, later, as many of you know, uh, became Nobel laureate. Uh, so it was, it was great to work with him on this stuff. And I didn't realize at the time my application was an ideal application because I submitted not just the application, but my research paper. So I had a running start. 
So that's that's the story, and it doesn't end there. Um, you know, it wasn't like obvious because um, when I the data I was showing to my committee, uh, there were four recessions, and my indicator accurately predicted all four. But a reasonable question was asked: Well, it's only four. This could just be lucky. And you know, it's a, it's a valid point. But there were a few reasons why they signed off in the end. Number one, the economic theory behind my idea was rock solid. There was no controversy on that. It's just a, a clean application. Uh, number two, my indicator got the so-called double dip recession of the early 1980s. So predicted two recessions accurately. And other indicators, including those professional services, failed to get that. And then um, there was kind of a joke made by uh, one of my other committee members, Merton Miller, uh, who said something like, you know, why pay $100,000 for a forecast when you could spend at the time, 25 cents to buy a Wall Street Journal and use my model. And, and it was true. In my dissertation, I showed that my model did as well or beat these professional forecasters. So, uh, and a very simple model. So that's, that's the origin. We go out of sample after I published the dissertation and usually out of sample, one of two things happens. So number one, the effect uh, gets weaker or fades. So it was four out of four, so you kind of expect maybe it would go six out of eight to add some misses or some false signals. Uh, and the other scenario is that the effect completely goes away, and maybe it was lucky. So uh, since the publication of my dissertation, uh, the indicator is four out of four, so total of eight out of eight, and without a false signal. And let me emphasize without a false signal, because anybody can come up with an ind indicator that is eight out of eight. It's simple. You just every quarter predict there's going to be a recession, and you'll be eight out of eight, but you'll have a massive false positive rate. So that's where we are. Uh, it's eight out of eight. And uh, now we're in kind of the ninth inversion. And the issue is, well, is it a false signal or not? Do you think it is? Uh, you mentioned you said at the beginning of January 2023, you thought it might be a false signal. Yeah. What do you think it's showing or what do you think it's playing out to be? Yeah. So number one, it's way too early mm -hmm. to declare a false signal. So if you look at the average lead time to a recession over the last four recessions, the yield curve inverts on average 13 months before the recession starts. We're in the 14th month. So it's about at the average. So, so it's way too early to say this is a false signal. The other thing that's not as well known is that before the last four recessions began, the yield curve uninverted. So it goes back to the normal situation where the long rate is greater than the short rate. And we are not near yet um, an uninversion. So, so what I think is, and, and this is also important, this model is about forecasting economic growth. It, Obviously, if you're able to forecast economic growth, you're able to forecast recessions also. The model is forecasting lower economic growth in 2024, and I believe that will be realized. So the model will be consistent on that. If, and this is to be redundant, if the Fed gets its act together and starts to do some remedial work, to try to undo some of the damage that it created in 2023, 
then I do believe that we have a good shot of having this so-called soft landing. And again, the slower growth is consistent with my model. Uh, it might be uh, a shallow uh, recession, which would be great. The, the yield curve gets talked about often in financial yeah. media. And as the creator and founder of this yield curve um, indicator, what are some of the things that you see out there that folks get wrong when they're talking about it? So this is, this is a fascinating uh, question. And it's something that I hadn't really considered until recently. So when I designed my model, remember I said it was based on sound economic theory, the yield curve just kind of reflected expectations. So just like a, a, a stock price or a bond price reflects the expectations in the market about the future cash flows. So it, it's really just reflecting expectations. So things have changed and it's not just reflecting expectations and coming up with a great forecast. The yield curve is now causal, which means an inverted yield curve actually causes the economy to slow down. So, so let me explain the logic and it's very consistent with your question and the idea here is that for most of my career, nobody paid attention to the inverted yield curve. So I've got uh, in some of my presentations a quote for some, from some private correspondence, somebody that was uh, at the Fed uh, before the global financial crisis, a real advocate of my model. And the yield curve was inverted and kept on pressing the Fed chair, yield curves inverted, we need to do something about this. And uh, it's, you know, screaming recession. This is before uh, the financial uh, crisis. And, and it was just ignored. And nobody, you know, really took much attention. But after the global financial crisis recession, people noticed this indicator seven out of seven with no false signals. So things changed. So people looked at it differently. And, and here's, here's one way uh, to think about it. In 2019, uh, the yield curve inverted and there was a huge amount of PR around it. And I was uh, on whatever uh, TV station and uh, all over uh, the media uh, for this. So it was completely different. So think about a situation, uh, a CEO gets in front of shareholders during the global financial crisis and the company's done very poorly. And, uh, and the CEO says to the shareholders, we were blindsided by this recession. And if we had any indication, we wouldn't have pulled the trigger on this major investment, which meant borrowing a lot of money and we're struggling and we got to lay off 50% of our workforce. And don't blame me because just look at all my peer CEOs. They were blindsided too. And it's a credible story. So it, it, it was a surprise to, to most. So now kind of fast forward, um, to today, we've got an inverted yield curve. And suppose we do go into a recession in 2024, and then there's a firm that's in trouble, and the CEO gets in front of the shareholders at the annual general meeting and gives the same speech. So, oh, well, I was blindsided by this recession. And then when the CEO says that, I would expect that the audience would burst out in laughter. How can you be blindsided when the yield curve is inverted and it's all over the media and the indicator is eight out of eight with no false signals? So like, like where do you live that you don't uh, know about this? So it'd be not a credible excuse. So given this indicator is so well known, 
it changes behavior. And we've seen this happening. So we've seen targeted layoffs that are maybe five to 10% of a company's workforce. That is risk management. So given the inverted yield curve, given the expectation of slower growth in 2024, you take these precautionary actions so that the firm is stronger during a slowdown. And these precautionary actions actually decrease economic growth. So that's what I meant that the yield curve is causing slower economic growth. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. So the idea is you cause slower growth, but you avoid a deep recession because companies are more prepared. They're stronger. And when the slow growth occurs, they can weather the storm. This is way better to, 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 to lay off 5% and kind of um, become a, a leaner operation is way better than getting into trouble and potentially slashing a substantial part of your workforce at a time that's super inconvenient for people because it's hard to find uh, a new job when you're in a bad uh, economic state. Uh, so it's way better to do things like that and, and to plan, to exercise risk management. So, so this is like, I think like an important part of kind of where we're going, this is uh, the so-called self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's really where we are with this indicator. And often when indicators become so popular, um, their ability to predict goes away. And I would be totally fine with that um, if it leads to a situation where our business cycle is much less volatile. We don't have the deep recessions. We have shallow, either shallow recessions or just slower growth. That is fascinating. So it sounds like it still has a predictive nature to it, but also yes. this newer development that it's causal. Can I ask you another question? Because if the model is about forecasting economic growth, how do you kind of extrapolate what that growth, what it says about the growth? Does it have to do with the slope of the yield curve? Can you help someone like myself who's a novice here understand yeah. what it is? So I think the simplest way to look at this uh, is when you look at the yield curve slope, which is the difference between the long rate and the short rate. Mm -hmm. And that usually is positive. But when it goes negative, that negativity implies slower growth. And it also, at least historically, has been associated with recessions. Okay, so I guess what I'm saying is, remember um, that if you kind of look graphically at that slope of the yield curve, you'll see that it looks really similar to year over year GDP. The same sort of patterns are there. So there is some predictability uh, both for recessions and economic growth. Um, so it is a lot to ask from this simple indicator, this thing that anybody can see on the internet for free now, what the 10-year treasury bond yield is and the three-month uh, treasury bill. This is really simple stuff. And the economy is very complex. And the case that I made last year in terms of the potential false signal is you need to look at other data. So, it, it, and if I was going back in time to 1981 and 82, um, I probably would be looking at other things in the data rather than just one thing. So the yield curve is an important signal, but it's not the only one. So I think we need to take that into account. And people, people have, you know, criticized the yield curve indicator because, oh well, yes, it's true, it's eight of eight, no false signals, but the lead time to recessions is inconsistent. Uh, oh, well, come on, for a simple indicator, you can't have everything. I have to say, this has been so fascinating, just getting the opportunity to 
to listen to you and learn from you, Professor Harvey. Let me put one more question to you. We don't have much time, but um, as you kind of look out uh, this year, maybe even further out, is there anything on your radar that's kind of keeping you up at night, if you will, that maybe worries you? Oh, there are many things. There are many things. Uh, indeed, my lecture today was on risk. And we went through all of the different types of risks that we're facing right now as kind of like a portfolio manager. It's an advanced uh, investment uh, course. And there are a myriad of risks. And the narrow risk that I've been focusing on is uh, the, the actions of the Federal Reserve. But there are many other risks that we haven't talked about. So we haven't talked about um, the health of our banking system. We haven't talked about uh, geopolitical risks that are real, that could disrupt things. We haven't talked about the changing role of China. China is a great diversifier in terms of economic fluctuations because often when the U.S. is in recession, they're demanding uh, a lot of imports uh, from the U.S. and providing cheap goods uh, to us. But Chinese growth is slow. So there, there are a number of headwinds, um, and they include underinvestment in certain technologies like climate technologies that we need to catch up uh, to. Um, it includes deglobalization. So many headwinds, but there are some positive things too. And uh, the major headwind for me uh, for next year is the service on government debt will, in my forecast, be the second largest government spending category. So more than military, more than Medicare. Right now, it's $720 billion at an average interest rate of 3%. So we know rates are much greater than three. So it's easy to do this math. So that that is a big deal. And how do we pay for that? And, and to pay for that by printing money is never a good idea. So there are uh, some headwinds, but what we need to do, in my opinion, is to focus on ways to reduce that debt. And there are many ways to do it. Increase taxes, that's toxic for economic growth. Print money to pay off the debt, that causes inflation, it's just another tax, that's also toxic. The way out of this is to grow and to grow much faster than we're growing today. And we're kind of at a situation where we're seeing a couple of very important disruptions, technological innovations in the forms of artificial intelligence and decentralized finance. Putting those two things together, I think, if we make the right decisions, could increase our growth rate very substantially. We should not be satisfied with 2%. We should not be satisfied with 3%. You know, China is disappointed with 5%. So there's no reason that we cannot go back to the growth path that we had in the past and have a credible target of 5%. And that will solve many problems. Well, Professor Campbell Harvey, Professor of Finance at Duke's Fuqua School of Business, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time your ideas, all of your knowledge, and I'd love to get you back on the future. Think on in the future. Thank you again, Professor Harvey. Thank you for inviting me.